0: The American Health Law Association is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 issues of
1: 2021, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to
0: mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and insurance. For more information,
1: visit pyapc.com.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 4 of AHLA's podcast series um, on the Top 10 Health Law Developments for 2021. I am Marty Ross with PYA. I'm joined today by Sunny Levine from Boley & Lardner. Sunday practices with the firm's telemedicine and digital health industry team. And Sunny authored uh, the section in the top 10 article on telehealth. And certainly 2020 was a wild year for telehealth. And we'll talk with Sunny about some of those developments, as well as predictions for 2021 going forward. So hello, Sunny, and welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Marty. That's
0: great. Uh, Well, let's just let's jump right in. Um, You know, there's a lot of waivers and a lot of interim rules and a lot of agency notices that came out about this time last year, in fact, uh, regarding Medicare coverage for telehealth and how it would be expanded uh, during the pandemic. Can you kind of give us a, a where we are today sort of overview on, on Medicare coverage for telehealth?
1: Sure, yeah, absolutely. So as we all know, 2020 was a wild year on lots of um, lots of accounts. Um, But starting on January 31st, 2020, that's when the COVID-19 PHE was first declared. Um, Since then, as Marty described, at states and also on the federal level, there have been several waivers that have dramatically changed the telehealth landscape. Um, And one of the most key and highlighted issues has been Medicare. Uh, Previously, Medicare... Had a pretty restring, stringent definition of the services that would be considered telehealth and be reimbursed um, under the, the C for service schedule. Um, this included some restrictions as far as you know, geographic restrictions and then also the type of services that would be offered. Um, but come the PHE and due to the need for social distancing um, and in a way to encourage beneficiaries to utilize telehealth services. CMS expanded the list of telehealth services that it would reimburse um, very dramatically, actually. Um, these services, um, they would usually provided in person, but instead um, they can be used via telecommunications technology and reimbursed at the full in-person rate. So several services were added to the telehealth list on an interim basis. And then CMS also expanded the list of permissible telehealth providers and broadened the availability of other modality types. So, for instance, the availability of audio-only telehealth services for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, So, under the recently issued 2021 Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule, telehealth services were grouped into three main categories. Um, The first one is the permanent code, so nine codes that will become permanent even after the PHEN. Um, the second grouping would be the 74 codes that will be removed when the PHE expires. And then finally, the third um, grouping or category is the 13 codes that are added to the list on a temporary, de- temporary basis. So these are considered category three codes and are subject to more uh, research and understanding of kind of what these codes will do and, you know, the cost and the benefit analysis of adding these codes on a more permanent basis.
0: Oh, Lots going on there. Um, So Medicare is only one payer, although it's obviously a dominant payer for for many providers. But what about in the Medicaid space? Do we also see expansion of telehealth there?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, We've seen significant expansion um, with state waivers for the Medicaid program um, to enable the use of telehealth at each state administers telehealth in their, their own way and each state administers their own Medicaid program. So we've seen a significant uh, expansion as far in particular with modalities, um, so acceptable modalities to provide telehealth treatment. And when, when we say modalities, we mean the type of communication technology that a provider can use when treating a patient. So we usually see them g- grouped into a few categories, um, including the synchronous, real-time, audio-video interaction that's kind of like these Zoom calls that we're all so fond of now. Um, The other kind of a lower modality standard would be something like an interactive audio. So that modality utilizes both an interactive audio component, but also includes some sort of extrinsic information to some sort of data that's clinically relevant to the patient and treatment of that patient. So for instance, a patient's medical records, or if it's a dermatology visit, some sort of high-definition uh, photograph that would uh, provide the provider enough information um, that they would normally utilize to make their treatment recommendations. Um, further down the line, there's uh, lesser modalities such as store and forward, which is also considered, uh, re- also uh, referred to as store and forward asynchronous. So this is the of what we see online often with the advertisements for the hymns or the get Romans and it utilizes a questionnaire that's branching um, that includes questions for the patient, then the patient will submit that information along with some clinically uh, relevant information to the provider. And based on that information that was stored and forwarded to the provider, the provider will make a treatment recommendation. And then far, finally there's audio only, and this is generally disfavored um, in most states, and that's just the, the telephone call, so there's no additional information used, it's, it's just the audio interaction. Um, during the PHE we've seen with you know, several state licensure laws and telemedicine practice standards, but also Medicaid um, programs that they've reduce the uh, the modality requirement from, you know, typically like an audio, video, synchronous, and it's a gold standard in the industry to lesser modality standards, for instance, like a store and forward, or, you know, allows the use of maybe audio only um, in order to increase, you know, again, access to telehealth for patients that may not have you know, access to, you know, bandwidth that will allow that uh, much more, you uh, I guess, comprehensive telehealth interaction.
0: You know, re- regardless of what modality you use, you still can't lay hands on the patient. And I know a lot of states have had restrictions about prescribing practices and whether you could prescribe certain medications um, relying solely on a telehealth visit. What, what's happened in that space during the public health e- emergency?
1: Sure, yeah, so this is one of the major changes that um, really enabled a lot of providers to treat patients um, where they previously wouldn't have been able to. So uh, with the waiver, with the uh, PHE declaration, DEA, the drug enforcement agency, they've issued their own waiver, two important waivers um, on remote prescribing. Um, one of them deals with, I'm, I'm sorry, this is remote prescribing of controlled substances. Um, previously under the federal Ryan Haight Act providers were required to have an in-person visit and exam of the patient prior to issuing an initial prescription um, for controlled substance via telemedicine. So there's certain uh, exceptions under that general prohibition, um, and one of them actually was triggered. It's the the emergency exception. So because of this emergency exception, that in-person prior uh, visit was waived during the PHE and instead, providers are allowed to now issue a prescription for controlled substances via telemedicine. Um, that's not just a, a blank waiver, though. So it would have to still be uh, the prescription still needs to be uh, made using real-time audio-video synchronous interaction. Has to be for a legitimate medical purpose. It also needs to follow all the requirements of state law. So while the federal waiver allows for this remote prescribing of controlled substances, we still need to look at the second layer, and that's the state-level laws. And states have, you know, state-by-state state basis, some states have waived any requirement for an in-person visit. Some states have not. So it's really, you know, it's kind of a two-fold conversation. But regardless, the federal waiver was a, a very big move that really opened up access to treatment for a lot of patients that, you know, a lot of them require this controlled substance in order you know to maintain stability. And so this was a very big, big move on you know, DEA's part. Um, and secondarily, uh, in order to prescribe controlled substances um, on a federal level, each provider needs to be licensed in the state that they will prescribe in um, with the federal DEA. DEA has also waived that requirement for the duration of the public health emergency um, and allows if a provider's only Registered with the DA in one state, they will then be able to prescribe in any other state. So that that was a also a, a great loosening up of um, these requirements that you know, enable patients to receive treatment that you know life-saving treatment in, in many times and provider to providers to expand their their geographic footprint. Yeah, let,
0: let's follow up a bit there on licensure because that's as you know back before, uh, pre-COVID, that always was an issue of whether a provider furnishing services via telehealth um, had to be licensed in the state in which the patient was physically present, um, which is both, as I understand, both a federal issue and a state law issue. So where does that stand today um, in terms of licensure requirements for telehealth?
1: Sure. Yeah. So. The licensure requirements also raise, right, like as you mentioned, Marty, it really depends on you know, it's a state-by-state basis, but generally the rule is that the patient has to be, or the provider needs to be licensed in the state that the patient is located at the time of the telehealth interaction. So regardless of where the provider is actually located, the key element is looking to where the patient is located at the time of that telehealth interaction. Um, we've seen you know, a state-by-state basis, but largely, you know, it's it's almost an overwhelming um, amount of states that have issued these licensure waivers. So these waivers often provide, you know, if a physician, for instance, is licensed in Florida, where I live, they would be able to treat a patient in, let's say, Kansas, if Kansas has issued that waiver. Um, Again, it's on a state-by-state basis, and the requirements for licensure really depend. So some states are, consider like self effectuating waivers. So there's no notification or any kind of application that the physician we, would need to complete in order to provide services um, within the, the state that they're not licensed in. But then other states have you know different processes. For instance, California is requiring the out-of-state providers to fill out an application form that just kind of provides basic information. It's, I think it's a one or two page application. It's not so extensive. But uh, it, it still has that ability to allow a provider, if approved, to provide telemedicine services, even though they're not licensed in California, for instance.
0: Well, it, it seems both at the federal and the state level, um, regulators have been trying to do everything they can to eliminate those obstacles to the delivery of telehealth. But at some point, uh, this public health emergency is going to end. And at least... at you know, at this point, HHS has told the governors to expect the PHE to continue through the end of 2021, but the calendar will flip over, we hope, it we'll get to 2022. So let's get your crystal ball out. Um, how much of this is, um, how many of these waivers may become permanent? Uh, how much do you think we're going to go backwards in terms of telehealth after the PHE is over? over?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, we've been asked that you know, a lot recently with, with clients because Right now, it's kind of you know, a great time to be practicing telemedicine with so many flexibilities that have been issued on a state and federal level. Um, and it, it's really hard to tell. I mean, the current landscape, as is pre COVID at least, was quite restrictive and really didn't take into account a lot of uh, technological improvements that we've made that you know, really allow for a physician or a clinician to provide a, you know, a wholesome visit that's very comprehensive via digital technology, it's it's definitely more convenient for the provider and for the patient, oftentimes much more convenient. So we've seen that the utilization rates have just been been through the roof. Patients are liking it and providers are also increasingly liking it and becoming more comfortable with it. So it's going to be hard to roll back a lot of these flexibilities to the point they were pre-COVID, just given the providers and patients are, are getting used to it and they're, they're really liking it. So we'll see how much of it is you know, is able or able to kind of um, to, to roll back or how much we'll see pressure on legislators in order to make some of these waivers permanent. And we have seen at least, you know, some states have made some of these flexibilities, Permanent changes. Um, we've seen that a lot uh, with a lot of our clients in the substance use disorder treatment space. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, again, there was there's lots of requirements on the state and federal level as far as prescribing and also licensure, um, physical brick and mortar requirements. But with the public health emergency, an unfortunate uh, side effect of that was also a steep incline in substance use disorder. Overdoses and and issues relating to substance use disorder, you know, partially due to kind of the confines the confines of staying inside and social distancing um, during during the coronavirus. So, uh, states in turn have issued waivers that allow remote prescribing of, of people morphine and other substances used in medication assistant treatment. And we've also seen that on the federal level that allows for a, a vast expansion in the ability to offer substance use disorder treatment via telehealth without that physical you know, kind of weighing down barrier of a brick and mortar location. Uh, so we, we've seen, for instance, New Hampshire has issued um, a, a, a recent law that makes a lot of the waivers that were issued you know, on a temporary basis, they make them permanent. So, we'll see how many states follow suit and also on the federal level, um, what actually passes and you know, how much pressure is put on these legislators to to make these flexibilities permanent.
0: Okay, so I've heard the term batted around, um, You know, the need for parity legislation. Um, can you explain what that means?
1: Sure, yeah. So I think we're referring to commercial payers. So these are the commercial carriers like Aetna or, um, other health plans. Um, previously, the way that telehealth services you know, pre-COVID, again, that COVID service, uh, telehealth services, are reimbursed was on a state-by-state level. Each state was allowed to determine uh, if they were going to reimburse um, if they were going to reimburse telehealth services or not, or cover telehealth services. And state laws mandate if a private payer could exclude these telehealth services, or if they were required to cover telehealth services. Um, And then the second part of that is parity. And so that is, would these commercial carriers in these states be required to pay and reimburse a provider for offering telehealth services to the same extent as they would for in-person services? Um, Pre-COVID, we saw throughout the map. there's there's, a lot of the patchwork. Some states, have telehealth coverage laws, some don't. Um, As of today, around 43 states have enacted some sort of telehealth coverage legislation, but even within that legislation, there's significant variation on the types of services that are covered. And again, if there is that payment parity. Um, We've seen through COVID, a lot of states uh, waiving requirements or adding requirements um, through like an executive order or an emergency action that mandates at any commercial payer to reimburse telehealth services to the same rate as they would in-person services. So that has been a sweeping change. And um, Oftentimes, you know, the, one of the hurdles towards offering a telehealth program or offering telehealth services for a practitioner is they're worried if they're going to get paid. Um, and this change of the law has, you know, enabled these commercial providers, these commercial payers to pay these providers for offering telehealth services, you know, at the same rate as in-person services. So it provides an incentive for these providers to add telehealth to their uh,
0: general offering. Um, you know, up to this point, we've been talking about telehealth, which, you know, at least in my head, um, is the what would otherwise be a face-to-face visit that you utilize the technology so that it you can have the provider and the patient at different locations. But I guess a close cousin to telehealth is virtual services, which are now the use of technologies in ways that don't replace what would have been a face-to-face visit, but um, afford new opportunities for patient physician interaction, and let's put in that category the sort of rise of remote patient monitoring. Um, Can you just give us a kind of a glance into what's going on in that space right now in terms of regulation or reimbursement or just the growth in the industry?
1: Sure, yeah, and remote patient monitoring is, as you mentioned, Marty, it's the ability to use some sort of remote sensors or some kind of of extrinsic um, measuring device. Um, for a patient, in order to monitor certain, uh, certain, I guess, that, that statistics. So, for instance, like a blood pressure cuff, or for a diabetes patient, some sort of monitoring device. Um, we've seen that you know it has expanded substantially this year, but there is still plenty of room to grow. So, there's been recent payment expansion for RPM services, both with these commercial coverage laws that we just spoke about and parity laws that are expressly adding remote patient monitoring services um, under the umbrella of what is covered as telehealth services, um, and also from you know, a Medicare perspective and Medicaid perspective. But that being said, you know there's still plenty of room to grow. Um, RPM has not had its quote-unquote breakout year yet um, as far as widespread use and coverage parity. So there's still plenty of room to grow for RPM services, although that's definitely a you know, an option for patients that, and providers that um, offers the ability to provide some, you know, excellent services and real-time monitoring that can help control diseases and um, generally keep the provider updated on the patient status.
0: Wow, well, Sunny, thank you so much. I mean, uh telehealth and virtual services, it's just, as you said, a wild ride. And I think that's going to continue going forward. So I'm sure we'll have many opportunities to learn from you and uh, about these topics. And thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Marty.